me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. We hope you've enjoyed the uh, time in the Psalms that we have had this summer, uh, and those who we've been blessed to be able to hear and share uh, the pulpit with uh, Camper and me. Uh, we delight in the Psalms because, as I said at the beginning, they are very real. Uh, they are raw emotion. Uh, that give us direction and illustration of how we as people can relate to our God. And while we did it last summer and may well do it next summer, uh, beginning of this summer, I had calculated with, uh, that with Camper's help that we could, not, we could do the Psalms and not repeat one section and still take 17 and a half years to do it if we do it by the summers. So, and even then, repetition is good. Last week, if those were looking ahead, might have been a little concerned since it says Psalm 119. And since I can take 45 minutes on a portion of a verse, and there's, you know, our focus this morning will be Psalm 119, verse 97, but for the context, we'll read the entirety of that uh, section. Um, and uh, for those who like the Hebrew, that would be the Hebrew letter Mem. So let's go to God's Word right now. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. May the Lord give us understanding of his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, we do give thanks to you for the word as it has been given to us, for it has been given for the instruction, not only of our minds, but of our hearts, our very souls, and for the direction of our lives. And we do pray, Lord, that you would open our minds as well as our hearts to receive what you would have us to understand today, that our lives might more and more be shaped by your character, that we might more and more become like Christ. We pray, Lord, that by this word and by your spirit, you would be at work in this place to your glory and to the joy that is ours as we become what you have created us to be. We pray this all in the name of Christ, our Redeemer, our King, the Living Word. Amen. As I come to this text, I have to begin with a confession that I don't naturally resonate with what the psalmist says here, certainly not in the, in the first verse when he says, I love your law. I respect laws and I appreciate laws, and every once in a while I'll read of a law that has been enacted in a statute in our community or wherever I happen to live that I think is long overdue, and I might get excited thinking about the order or things being put the way they ought to be put, in my sovereign estimation. Um, and so I might appreciate those things, and I might enjoy them, but to say I, I love the law is not my natural instinct. And yet the psalmist here doesn't only express that he loves the law, he is writing a love song about the law, and it, frankly it seems a little weird to me. 
some of you law students might be able to help me with that. But there are others who are here that may wonder whether or not we even should love the law because, frankly, a lot of the evil that's being perpetrated throughout the world is because of people who have a seemingly warped sense of affection for their laws and the desire to impose those laws upon cultures that are very different from their own. And those who have grown up in the church may sometimes be confused or wonder whether we ought to love the law either because, as you've probably heard growing up, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And it's a direct quote from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. And so it seems to settle the issue is that we should love grace and why would we love the law? In fact, the law seems to be so bad that we had to get out from underneath its influence, get out from under its thumb so that we could get under grace and be set free and to enjoy. Now, had it said, I love your grace, then I can understand why I, I, I would be there. It would resonate with me, but the psalmist doesn't say that. He says, I love your law. I think it's important that we want to understand that those who have been shaped by the mindset that Romans 6.14, which does say we are no longer under law, we are under grace, takes that, has often taken that verse out of the context, which, and out of its context, it seems to belittle the law or at least diminish the importance of the law. But if you look at the whole section in Romans 6, you realize that Paul has no small, no little attitude about the law. Puritan pastor John Owen, who is considered one of the most brilliant thinkers of that era, says, let no man think he understands the gospel who knows nothing of the law. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing to his protege Timothy, who had taken on the task of becoming pastor of a church whose best days were in the rearview mirror, and Paul is actually mentoring Timothy and encouraging him and instructing him on how he should engage this church and encourage it and help it to become strong and healthy again. Paul, in the very first chapter of 1 Timothy chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, says to his protege, we know the law is good when the law is used properly, or as the ESV accurately corrects, uh, captures, we know the law is good when the law is used lawfully. So the play on words that the apostle employs there. And it's not insignificant that the same guy who was often cited for Romans 6 is the one who wrote that to Timothy. And so it makes no sense that he would have a little view of the law if he's writing to Timothy to come into a church to try to help Christians to grow in their faith to become stronger, to become faithful, to become fruitful, to now bring up the point of the law and saying, the law is good, if the law was not in fact good. Now, there are two key words, I think, in that First Timothy verse that we need to consider before to help us to understand. One is if, and then the other is lawful. The law is good if it's used in a proper way. And so, in other words, it seems to be an implication that there are some who may like the law, appreciate the law, even love the law, but they use it in a way that is not the way that the law is supposed to be used. And when we've experienced that, what we find there is abuse. And then second is if, if it's used lawfully. In other words, in the way that it was intended to be used. Those two words are the keys to understanding that concept, but the end result is when the law is used lawfully, Paul says, we know the law is good. So our desire this morning, or what I want to do this morning, is to talk about how we are supposed to use the law in a way that is good. And while my natural instinct is not to rejoice and sing songs about the law, by the time we understand how this law is used, perhaps we might. 
We need to understand that biblical scholars and theologians tell us that there are three uses of the law, and these are not isolated bullet points. These three are completely interactive with one another. They feed on one another. There's a synergistic component to them that actually they continue to cycle in our lives when we're using the law properly, and they build us up in Christ, and they help us to be strengthened in his grace and more and more to become like Christ, which is the object of our faith in the first place. The three uses of the law that theologians say is first is that it is a reflection of the holiness of God. The second is that it breaks us and it drives us to the cross. And the third use of the law is that it is a guide for day-to-day life. Now, it's important as we look at these three things, again, to remember that they work together and to realize that each component has a different aspect to it. And if we were to use any of those uses in a way that they're not intended or to try to give uh, a power or an assignment to a component of the use of the law, that it's not intended, then it just falls back into ugliness. It's a misuse of the law, and we would still be confused and not understand why the psalmist can be so excited about the law that he would write a love song about it. So we'll look at the first use of the law, and the first use of the law is is simply this, although it's not simple at all, is it reflects the holiness of God. Every law reveals some aspect of the character of God. Whether it is immediately obvious to us or not, every law that God has spoken to us in his scriptures reveals his heart about something, his passions, his priorities, and corresponding to that then we can get a picture of his own character. Now, it's important that we also understand that in the scriptures there are different kinds of laws. The first distinction that we need to make are those laws that were given by God and those laws that were given by men. Particularly confusing sometimes is when we look at laws or as they were practiced in the book of Genesis before God had given the law. Men had come up with certain ideas in order to govern themselves that are recorded for us but are not spoken by God. Some of them are good ideas, some of them are not good ideas, and some of them makes me wonder what they were drinking when they were composed those laws. But those laws are not the ones that were necessarily given by God. All of the scripture is not instruction, it is informative. It shows us what happened, not necessarily tells us how we are to live. And so just because men came up with a law and they lived by it, more or less, doesn't mean that that is instruction for us. It's only God's laws that actually I believe the psalmist is speaking about that bring him delight. But even with God's laws, there are different components to the law that it's helpful for us to understand, though you could probably sleep well enough not knowing it tonight. But for the sake of continuity, I'll I'll share what those are. There is the moral law, Ten Commandments being the the bullet points of that law. All the other laws given by God are reflected in those Ten Commandments. All the other laws, the moral laws, are expressions or detailed ways of application of those Ten Laws. And the moral law is the only law that continues to be in effect in the same way as it was given uh, by God through his lawgivers, particularly through Moses, but then through the other prophets as well. We also have in the scriptures what is known as the ceremonial law. So when you see all the, all the celebrations and all the rituals, in order to prepare yourself to come into God's presence, in order to offer sacrifices so that we would be forgiven of our sin or, or, and blessed by God, restored in that relationship, all of those are ceremonial laws that Jesus Christ has fulfilled. All of them point to one who would be the sacrifice and who would fulfill those. And so every time that we are trusting in Christ, when we are rejoicing in Christ, we are being cleansed by Christ and we are fulfilling all of those laws simply by our honoring of Jesus Christ. 
And then the third component was that of the civil law that was given specifically to Israel as the distinct people of God. God called a people to be his own. He gave them laws because he was the king. He was going to govern. He governed them even before he established the king there. And then when the king was established, God was still the authority over the king. And so you see throughout the scriptures, in particular in the Old Testament, a number of civil laws that were to be used in Jerusalem and Israel to deal with the civil life of the people of Israel. And those laws, once Israel no longer existed, when God scattered them because of their unfaithfulness and he sent them into exile, there was no longer an Israel, at least not a geopolitical state that once had existed and that God was sovereign ruler over. Even political Israel today is, has remnants of that, but there is no king. And they are not guided by God's laws, but by man's laws, and so it's a very different thing. At the same time, it's interesting is that we who are God's people, the church, who are also called the people of God, Israel, we are marked by our conformity to God's law as well, at least by the world around us. The fact that we submit ourselves to a particular law, to God's law, rather than what happens to be the prevailing civil laws in our culture, marks us as belonging to God. In some cases, we might be, receive esteem. In some cases, we might receive, receive scorn, or we might just seem bizarre. In any place throughout the world, depending on our conformity to God's world, the culture around us will compare us to their principles. And so even though that the civil law of Israel has been given and no longer exists, we are told that the benefits, theologians use the word, the general equity of that law is still appropriate. In other words, there's such wisdom in that law that all societies would be benefited from considering what's the reasons for these laws and then making appropriate laws for our own society. But the church of Jesus Christ, those who belong to Christ, are identified by our willingness to be conformed to God's law, to God's way. And so there is a clear, or at least I hope it's a clear, uh, parallel between God's law given to Israel, which is no longer binding because Israel no longer exists in the same way, and God's people. There is, there is a, a parallel there. Now, what we need to understand again in these things is that God's laws are extensive, and they're specific, and they're comprehensive. And when we look at the specificity of these laws and the extent of these laws, it should be a reminder to us that God is not somebody to be trifled with or somebody to be ignored or somebody to be taken for granted. See, the extent of his laws permeates every aspect of our being, of our society, of our inner relationships, not only of our faith, but of our practice as well. There's not an area of our lives that comes untouched by what God has declared in his laws. And he reminds us through that that he cannot and should not be relegated simply to Sunday or when we get together as Christians and interact with one another. Every aspect of the law reminds us that God is big, and God is powerful, and our God is demanding because God says that his law is to be obeyed or we deserve death. It's not only an Old Testament concept, but Paul reiterates that as well when he tells us the wage of sin is death. We break the law at any point. We deserve death, alienation from God. It's true for all of humanity anywhere in the world. And so we realize when God is that specific, that pervasive, and that demanding that God is big, he is powerful, he is awesome. Just the fact that we can't even break one place in it should be a reminder to us of holiness, his purity, his differentness than we are. 
But at the same time, we need to realize that while the law is, reveals the character and the holiness of God where he's demanding, another characteristic that it continually reminds us of is God's love. Every law has been given to us, not merely so that God can sit up there and say, watch me, see what I can make them do now. Or somehow to demonstrate that he has power and authority, God's not insecure in the way that we may be at times. But God gives his laws for us in order that we might know how life is to work. Now, I've understood that concept for a long time, but a few years ago I, had the opportunity, I watched a video by a guy named Francis Chan. Some of you may be familiar with, with him. Francis Chan is a Chinese-American pastor who has a tremendous gift of teaching. I had grown to uh, a, a significant following. His church was exploding. And so his response to his church exploding because of all the people and his celebrity was to say, my church is doing fine, they do fine without me. And so he quit and went and moved someplace where nobody knew who he was because he recognized the temptations of the celebrity pastor, which usually doesn't end up pretty. He also wanted the power of God and not the idea that he has celebrity behind him to be the influencing factor in the ministry that he had. And he's a sharp guy, and if you have opportunity to read some of his books or see some of his videos, I would endorse him almost wholeheartedly. There's a few areas that he's still continuing to grow. Some that know uh, Paul Miller, who's a friend of our church here. Uh, Paul's actually been mentoring Francis uh, for the past couple of years, beginning through how to pray, and then it's developed into a good friendship. And so Paul is helping Francis grow into a full, comprehensive, consistent biblical theology. But in the video that Francis Chan has, which was intended to try to introduce people to the Christian faith, he's out in California, and people have some weird ideas out there, I hear. And so, but the video starts with this guy kind of just walking along. You see this uh, sandy path, holding a surfboard, wearing, you know, surfer shorts, heading down, just walking around the trail, and he begins talking about the God of creation and creation and the implications of it. And then he gets to the point of the law, and he makes this point that is important for us to understand. That God doesn't give us the law to just bully us, but he gives us a law in order for us to know how life works best. It's an expression of his love. And he says, for instance, when God says, do not kill, he's not trying to rob you of the fun you might have on a Friday night with somebody that you don't like. He's saying, life is just more pleasant if you don't have to worry about somebody killing you. When he says, do not steal, he's not trying to keep you from getting stuff. He says, life and relationships are just more enjoyable when we're not worried about people taking our things. And as he goes through the law, every law that God has given to us, no matter how comprehensive or no matter what part of our lives, every law that declares to us the glory, the holiness, and the demandingness of God also screams to us of his love because his laws reveal to us how life works. And so when we look at the law of God and we spend time and we meditate upon it, even if we haven't been prone to think about it in this way, particularly when we consider the moral law, we realize an aspect of God's character that perhaps we are prone to overlook. And the law is useful for us to be able to consider because it tells us about God. And it tells us about his, his greatness as well as his love. Now, the second use of the law is one that some people probably might feel like they could do without. Nevertheless, it's vitally important to joy, even as counterintuitive as it may seem. And that is that the law breaks us. But it drives us to the cross. You see, no matter what you might think 
or what you may have been taught. And despite the fact that the law and God demands that his law be obeyed, the law cannot be kept. Not perfectly. Not in the way that it's designed to. Not in the way that it's intended to. And a lot of problems, both personally and culturally, have come from the fact that people have been mistaken about that concept or misunderstood, thinking that some way, somehow, they're going to keep that law. The Pharisees who get beat up a lot are a good example. Pharisees do take a bad rap a lot because they were zealous for the glory of God. Part of the laws reveal that. And they were zealous to be in right standing with God. And so they realized that the law was a fragile thing. And so they did what's called hedging the law. In other words, whatever the law said, realizing it'd be too easy to break, we'll make our own rules that are related to this law, and that way we won't even come close to breaking God's law. For instance, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a day that is you're to rest and to not labor with the exceptions that God has given, works that are necessary to life and works of mercy uh, to benefit other people. But that seemed rather general. And so they asked themselves, what is a work? Well, traveling sort of can be a work. And so what they realized is, particularly on the Sabbath day, that people had to travel to their place of worship. They figured out mathematically, probably some pre-engineers in there, how, what was the average number of steps that it would take for a person who lives in a particular city to walk to worship and then home. And then, to be gracious, they threw in a few more steps so that people would be able to walk to and walk home from worship and be safe and be able to do that without necessarily violating the law of work. Because walking more than you needed to was not, no longer, it was not necessary, and so that would violate it. Now, I don't know if that seems reasonable to you or not. Sometimes it seems reasonable to me. Sometimes it seems particularly bizarre. When it becomes only bizarre is when you realize what happened as a result of that. Some of these guys would, I guess, miscalculate their steps. And so scattered around many cities, you would just see guys just plop down on their way home, you know? They had exhausted their steps. Until sundown, they would take no more steps. So they would just sit down as an obedience to a law that wasn't God's law, but their own law that they were hedging. They would sit there, and they'd sit there for the rest of the day demonstrating to all how committed they are to keeping a law. Since everybody did this, people were impressed. Very few would be like us, because if I see a guy sitting along the road as I drive home today, I'm going to think he's an idiot, But that's uh, uh, if he's sitting for that reason. But they were hedging the law, thinking, by hedging, we can keep this law. And as ridiculous as that may sound, we've embraced that in our own culture as well. We see what God has said, and we create our own rules in order to keep us from breaking the rules. Let me give an example. The scriptures tell us that we are not to get drunk. We should not be, should not be drunken. Uh, there's no drunkenness. It's inappropriate. It's not good for us. It's a reasonable rule. So there are some who have decided since there should be no drunkenness, there should be no partaking of alcohol. Understandable because the abuse of alcohol has devastated families and cultures, cities, churches, schools, you name it. Nevertheless, that wasn't God's law. Now, for those of you who are teetotalers, I'm not suggesting you should drink. I can't give you a good reason why you should. 
But I am saying that we tend to make hedges just like the Pharisees do in order to help us think that we are keeping the law. Now, where I moved from and spent the better part of my adult life in Appalachia, that law has become really a farce in a lot of ways because whether somebody drinks or not is the identifying mark of whether they are a faithful Christian. And there are people who will tell you, I wouldn't even think of taking a drop to drink, and yet they're mean as snakes. And gossip and nasty. And then when I think that they do this while they're sober, it just makes it all the more perplexing. (laughs) Somehow they're honoring Christ because they haven't violated the hedge. And yet I think there's an instinctive nature that we have to do this. We want to be thought well. We don't want to break rules unless we think that they're ridiculous rules. The law of God is not ridiculous. The law of God is comprehensive. And the law of God is not doable. The Pharisees thought that it was. Jesus, in a more subtle way than perhaps we might at least at one point at the beginning of his ministry, speaking and teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he was speaking to people and addressing them who had this mistaken idea that if I am just committed enough, I will keep the law. And he begins to teach them and to show them how misguided that notion is. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I tell you, if you're even angry with your brother, you are guilty. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you have even looked at a woman with lust, you are already guilty. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law as people understood it, seems plain, straightforward, and he ratchets us up, and he addresses us right where we need to hear it, because most of us look at this in terms of behavior, and God's law is so demanding and so pervasive, because God is all pervasive, that it's not just what we do, it's what we think, and how we feel, and how we act, And while we may keep the external portions of the law, although we don't do that either, the very heart of the law, we are restraining or violating and just trying to keep up appearances. As a result, our hearts get hardened, our relationships get fractured, and Jesus who loves us is not going to allow us to live our lives that way. Not only does it diminish the reality of God's glory in our eyes when we think the law is something so simple we can do it, Yeah, God's holy, I'll be holy too. But it sends a wrong message to the world. His ways may be wise, but they are not easy. And when we pretend they are, we lie. We do a disservice to people who inevitably are going to embrace it and find this is not what I was told. Paul dealt with this issue when he was writing to, the, writing to the Galatians. These are people who had become believers and then thought, ah, I know what we'll do. We'll measure ourselves according to the law. And Paul, as he's challenging those Christians, and they are Christians because he talks to them, at, saying, you, no, you've already received Christ. You saw Christ clearly presented as crucified. You believe that? I have a question for you. Did you receive the Spirit? Another indication that they are believers because only believers receive the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit because you believed or because you behaved? Now, everyone in that church would have acknowledged you received the Spirit, they were saved because they believed what Jesus had done. And Paul then follows up his question and saying, why then, having begun by grace through faith, 
do you think you're going to perfect yourself by your own strength? In other words, if you became Christians by grace, by believing, and receive the Spirit that way, why are you kidding yourself and thinking that it's, you're somehow going to now be strong enough to keep the law? And Jesus is reminding us, as he was reminding, uh, uh, Paul was reminding them, as Jesus is reminding us through Paul, that it's a foolishness for us to assume that we are keeping the law. The law is put in place to break us like a drill sergeant with new recruits for the Marines. Not for the sake of cruelty, though it may seem that way for a time, but to make you what you need to be. It breaks us of our pretensions. It reveals to us our emptiness, our need. No matter how we compare to anyone else, when we realize we have broken the law, the wages of sin are death and alienation from God, no matter how hard you try, which usually then becomes self-effort and self-glorification, you just put yourself deeper into the hole. One of the old country guys that I, I hang out with before used to tell some of the people that were more foolish in our church, he learned a lesson early in life. When you dig yourself into a hole, stop digging. The same is true from the law standpoint. When the law has broken us, striving isn't going to make us better. Just get, allow yourself to be broken because that's God's turn in time. And the scriptures reveal to us a beautiful promise that a broken and contrite heart the Lord will never despise. He will always receive. And we, by being broken by the law, realizing that we have not kept it, we become prepared for the love of God that is demonstrated perfectly in Jesus Christ because he did live the law and was sent to live the life we were supposed to live. He bore the penalty that we deserve for our disobedience to the law and then gave himself freely for us that whoever are trusting in him, they are credited with his perfection, forgiven of our sin, and made right with God, empowered by his Holy Spirit. But the only way we receive the benefits of Christ are not by intellectually saying, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died on the cross and then who rose again on the third day so that it is by allowing yourself to be broken and to rejoice in such a loving, generous, gracious gift. Jesus says it's the only way. It's the only way in which we enter into a relationship. And Jesus continually reminds his disciples, and Paul continually preaches, as does Peter, as does James, that it's not only the way that we come into the faith, it's the way that we live day in and day out, which leads us to the third use of the law. First use is it's a reflection of God's holiness. To meditate on the law, it gives us an opportunity to know more about God. The second use of the law is to break it, to break us, to allow us to be broken, and drive us to the cross, and remind us we have no other hope except for what Jesus does. It helps us to let go of any pretense a false hope that we have. We quit kidding ourselves. But the third use of the law is that it becomes a guide for day-to-day -day life. See, God, who knows how life is supposed to work, has not left us in the dark about what's right or wise or what's wrong and foolish. God has revealed to us his will through his commands, and he has given to us through his commands a rule for daily living. His commands also, we're told, are a way that we can express our love for him. It's not a way to get us to get him to love us. And that's a mistake that we tend to make. See, Jesus was asked, essentially by people like you and me, saying, now that we've been broken and realize that we have been made whole, and realize at a deeper level what you've done for us. I can't repay that. How, what should I do? 
And Jesus says, if you love me, just you want to keep my commands. Which then becomes an interesting because that's the way life is supposed to work. And we realize by his commands how much he loves us all the more. And it keeps us growing by realizing we will never outgive God's love. But he never says, keep my commands and I'll love you. That's what we say. That's what we feel. Jesus says, I have loved you. I've given myself for you. Trust, believe. And obedience is a way of honoring Christ. It's a, every obedience is to say, I love you, Jesus. Which begs the question that we should ask ourselves regularly. What have you done or not done simply to say to Jesus, I love you? God's pervasive, extensive rules and laws serve us. It's said it's like a window that when open allows the beauty and the refreshing fragrance of his truth and grace to permeate our surroundings. It's like a GPS, a good GPS, one that doesn't take you on rabbit trails and paths, one that's full with accurate information that tells you where you need to go. And depending on where you happen to be, whether you need to go to your right or to your left, it gives you a picture of your destination. It tells us that our first ultimate destination is that we are called to love God. But it also shapes our lives because it tells us that we are supposed to have a particular care for the poor and for the fatherless and for the widows. God's law tells us that generosity and hospitality ought to be marks of our lives. We don't live in isolation and we don't hoard things for ourselves, but we pour ourselves out for others, believers and unbelievers alike. It gives instructions on how the family is to be put together and how wives are to relate to their husbands and husbands to their wives and fathers to their children and how children are to honor and how they can honor their parents. The law tells us what is good and what is evil, and it tells us what is righteous and what is sin. It reminds us to say no to the sin. It reminds us to repent when we didn't say no. It's said that the law is not just a window or a GPS, it's also a mirror. And I assume most of you used this morning. I don't see any evidence of somebody who didn't. Now, I've gone times, usually on a mission trip or something, where there is no mirror that is readily available, and I'm tired, and I think to myself, I've been brushing my hair by myself since I was 23 years old. Now, a little before that, but I should have muscle memory by now, so what's the big deal? Just take the brush out. I feel fine until I see myself a little bit later and realize I um, missed a few things. Most of you checked the mirror this morning for certain things. One, is there anything ugly that needs to be removed or covered or something? And two, is there anything good that needs to be put in its place? The law is a mirror for us. It reveals to us the holy truth of God and it's held up to us and God saying, this is really who you are and this is who you're becoming. And yet there's a reflection that we see in the mirror reveals to us what isn't in its proper place so that we are able to deal with it. 
the repentance and belief of what Christ has done, having already been broken, trusting and realizing again how beautiful God's law is for us. These three things work together in a synergy. Years ago, the pastor Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher from London, was approached after a service by a lady that was wrestling, I guess, with this very question. She asked him this question, how do you reconcile law and grace? And Spurgeon said, I don't but I have no need to reconcile friends. See, the law and the gospel are not in competition with one another. They are committed to the same thing, which is the glory of God and you and me to grow into the image of God as he originally created us. They work in sync together. And if we were to personify them, they would rejoice in one another when they are performing the way they are designed to perform. It reminds me, as I was thinking about the whole concept of the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, the last gymnastics, uh, the last Olympics a couple years ago, these girls had apparently grown up together since they were very young, nine or ten, many of them, when they'd begun training with the U.S. Olympic Center. They were the best of friends, and yet, they came to a point of the individual competitions where they were in competition against one another. Somebody was going to get the gold. Somebody was going to get the silver. Somebody would get the bronze. Somebody would go home with nothing. And yet in those Olympics, those girls were cheering for one another, excited for one another, even when they were the one, not the ones that had won. And the reason was because, one, they were friends and they loved one another, and two, because they were committed to the same thing, that they would bring home the gold for the gymnastics for the United States whatever their participation is. See, the law and the gospel rejoice and work together in that same way. And it's important for you and me to understand that in order that we would gain the benefits, not just have the right understanding, but the benefits that come to those who understand this. And so for us who are here today, we have the opportunity when we think about this in a way that is, is right. One is to evaluate your use of the law. Are you one who is prone to just take it for granted just because you've under the impression the law is ugly, leads to legalism? Or are you one who justifies yourself? You measure yourself against other people or how much God must love you because you've kept these things at least well enough in your own opinion. We need to be asking ourselves that question. How do I use the law? Am I using the law in a, in a, in a way that is lawful? then take the law and preach the law to yourself as well as the gospel. See, the law tells you what it is that we're supposed to do. Not only do you measure yourself based on what you did or didn't do, but what you were thinking about it. I can do a lot of things I don't want to do. But if I don't want to obey God's law, I need to be asking myself, why? What is it that I think of God that would think that he would tell me to do something that would be worse for me than if he would just leave me to myself? and confess my attitude as if I had violated it overtly. Now broken 
reminding myself that my standing before God and my hope is not in my ability to keep the law, but in Christ's ability to keep me. And just stand amazed at how much you're loved, which will motivate you to keep the law, to say, I love you to Jesus. And then third, I would encourage you to meditate on the law like the psalmist does here. I don't have time to go through the whole thing. But if you read now this psalm, really all of Psalm 119, but this particular section, with the understanding of the uses of the law and how they work together, and assuming that this psalmist, since God had inspired him, had some understanding of that, now realize what part is he highlighting? A lot of this is the wisdom that he gained in the day-to-day life because he realizes the God who loved him has loved him enough to show him how to live. But it also gives him the love to know that he can approach God in worship and that he rejoices and loves the law because the law is the tangible expression of the nature and character of God. He loves the law because he loves God. We are a people who would be able to honestly ask ourselves, how do I use the law? And preach the law and the gospel to ourselves. And then meditate on the law, realizing it's going to tell me something about God. Maybe we'll be inspired to write a love song about God's law too. Let me pray. Father, we do rejoice in the word that you've given. And pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes to see the beauty of your law. Even as we see the foolishness of our own hearts that tends to misuse it. But by the grace of your spirits, may you allow us to use the law rightly. Not only that we would see its beauty, but that we would rejoice in it and rejoice in you all the more. For you, in your great love, have given us this law for our delight and the delight in becoming like Christ. We bless you and praise you, Father, in the name of Jesus.